I'm not sure about you, but something I really enjoy are watching movies in which there is a treasure map involved. You see a storyline in which a group of people are walking through a narrative, a story in which they're following a map, hoping to get to the final destination of the treasure. Okay, maybe you've done this where you, you have a treasure map that you will set up and go and explore with family. Or maybe you go hiking and you add a little geocaching to it where you look for other fun things along the trail. Uh, something that Christy and I do is every Christmas uh, we'll have a, a prize, uh, a gift that we'll give to the kids that is somewhere hidden in the house. And we'll set up a, a treasure map that they have to follow the clues to get to the final treasure Well, what we see when we read the scriptures is that the Old Testament is like a treasure map. It walks us through the narrative, through the story of people and events and places that ultimately find the greatest treasure in the final destination of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is the greatest treasure, more valuable than silver and gold, is the one we discover when we walk through the Old Testament. Well, as a church, we're walking through the book of Acts together, and we're about to embark upon chapter 7, where Stephen stands up to preach to the Sanhedrin. And we're going to see how he walks through the Old Testament. And over these next six, seven weeks, we're going to be walking through how Stephen walks through the Old Testament and points to the greatest treasure, Jesus Christ. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts Chapter 6. No, would you mind bringing my, my Bible? Thank you, buddy. I left it down there on the, in my seat. Thank you, buddy. Acts chapter 6. And so as we're walking through Acts, y'all, there is so much there. There's so much to discover and to, to, to learn from. We've seen where the Holy Spirit has fallen at Pentecost. We see where lives are being changed by the gospel. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, the book of Acts is in the New Testament, the fifth book. It's right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We see where the Spirit is at work. The church is being born. Lives are being changed. And yet persecution is coming against the church. We've seen imprisonment so far against the apostles. And what we're going to see at the end of this series, as we go through the end of Acts chapter 7, we're going to see the first martyr, where Stephen is going to give his life for the sake of the gospel. What we saw last week is the church is facing some drama. It's facing some discord uh, that's brewing within the church as Hellenistic widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the church calls out seven men to care for widows, one of whom is Stephen. We see halfway through chapter 6 how God is working in and through Stephen and how it sets the stage for him to preach to the Sanhedrin. So we're going to begin our our time together in Acts chapter 6, reading with verse 8. The scripture says this, Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia. And they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes. So they came, seized him, and took him to the Sanhedrin. 
They also presented false witnesses who said, This man never stopped speaking against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's press pause there for a moment. Here is Stephen, a man who's serving widows, caring in the church for those who are left behind. And he is a bold witness for Christ. He's full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. He's declaring the good news of Jesus. And God is working in and through his life. But he's so persuasive that these Jews begin rising up against him and they despise him. They begin arguing with him, but he keeps shutting them down. His arguments are so persuasive that they can't contend with what's coming out of his mouth. So they decide to raise up these liars, these accusers who are speaking against him, putting words in his mouth, making up things that are not true. He's then taken before the Sanhedrin, the great high court of Israel, 70 men plus the high priest who have the authority to kill you if you are a false teacher. So he is brought before the Sanhedrin, standing before a semicircle, multi-layered group of men, and he's on trial for his life. But as they look at his face, last verse of chapter 6, he has the face of an angel, the presence of and the peace of God is upon him. He is not fearful or afraid as he stands before these men, but he is bold as a lion, confident of the Holy Spirit and how God is going to speak in and through him. So now the time comes for him to give an account. In chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest asked, Are these things true? In essence, how do you plead? All of these arguments, this case has been built against you. What do you have to say for yourself? And he begins here with his defense in verse two. Brothers and fathers, he replied, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran and said to him, leave your country and relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this land in which you are now living. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. God spoke in this way, his descendants would be strangers in a foreign country and they would enslave and oppress them for 400 years. I will judge the nation that they will serve as slaves, God said. After this, they will come out and worship me in this place. And so he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. After this, he fathered Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Stephen begins his sermon with the very first patriarch, Abraham. And what's amazing to me is verse 2, the God of glory appeared to Abraham. Now, Abraham was living in Mesopotamia. It's modern-day Iraq. It's a land full of wealth and prosperity. The people there are polytheists. They worship many gods. And when God called Abram, he left his security. He left familiarity, comfort, wealth, and the God that he worshiped. He's a man who did not know the Lord. He was not seeking the Lord, but the Lord was seeking him. 
God was on his trail coming after Abraham. God pursued him and called him and invited him to leave his old life and to come and follow him to a new and better life. And the same is true for you. You and I, in our own hearts, we were pursuing after other gods before we knew Christ. Living for sin, living for self, going our own path. But then God pursued us. He came after us in the gospel. Jesus came and pursued you. You may have been a little child in vacation Bible school when you put your faith in Christ or a college student or an adult. But there was this moment in which Jesus met you and he changed you. He called you out of a life of polytheism, of all these gods that are clamoring for the affection of your heart. That you left a life of, of privilege or wealth or comfort, and he called you, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and come follow me. That is what happened with Abraham, where God calls him away from his old life and to follow him to a new life, and that's what God has called you. He has met with you. He has invited you to a brand new life that is drastically different than the life you would have lived if you had not known Jesus. If you do not know Jesus today, oh, that today you would turn from your sin and trust in Christ, that you would hear the call of Jesus to deny yourself, pick up your cross and to follow him, to believe the gospel, to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And what's amazing is that when you give your life to Jesus, when you lay down your affection for money and for power and for pride and for self, when you give those things up and you follow Jesus, he leads you to a new and better life. But notice that I did not say an easy life. The call to follow Jesus is not easy. It's a call of hardship and difficulty and suffering. It's a call to have to deny your flesh, deny your desires, to deny your heart and to follow Christ. But what you find is that it's the good life because Jesus promises, I will always be with you. And I look across this room and I see a sea of generations of people who would gladly stand up and testify, Jesus has always been faithful to me. Jesus is always faithful. You can trust your life upon him. You can bank your soul upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He is faithful. And so as Abraham is forsaking his old life and he's going to this new land that he's never been to before, following God on this new trail, he will find that God is faithful. And as you think about your life before you knew Jesus in which you abandoned these old things and you said yes to Jesus, he shows himself faithful. Well, here's Stephen. Here in the text, he begins this sermon before the Sanhedrin by pointing to holding up the promises of God that he made to Abraham, a man who the Sanhedrin reveres as their first father in the faith. But I want you to notice in the text how Stephen recalls these promises that God makes to Abraham and then what these promises mean to us. I want you to see first God's promise of land to Abraham. God's promise of land to Abraham. Quoting Genesis 12, Stephen recalls how God told Abraham to leave your country, leave your relatives, come to the land that I will show you. God was calling Abraham away from what was familiar. He's calling him away from family ties and calling him to go to a place he'd never been before. 
God promised Abraham land that would be a provision for his family, but also where God's presence would be with his family. You see, in this new land, there would be a temple that would be built where God would come and meet with his people, a tangible place where his, God's people would gather for worship. And as Abraham arrives in Canaan, this land that the Lord has showed him, the Lord says, this is the land for your people. Now, Abraham, you're not going to get to live here. This is not going to be for your possession, but it is for the possession of those who will come beyond you, descendants who will come through your barren wife, Sarah. And they will become a great nation of this new land. Even though Sarah had not given Abraham any children, Abraham believed God. He trusted God. It was credited to him as righteousness. He believed what God said. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. God promised Abraham that the land underneath his feet would belong to his people. This lush land flowing with milk and honey would become the possession of a great nation that would come through him. And when you get to the book of Joshua, you read of how God kept his promise that the land would indeed become the possession of Israel. God is faithful to his word, and indeed the title and deed of the land would go to his people. But this is not just a theological lesson on real estate. God was up to something bigger. You see, for it would be in this land that God would one day come and dwell with his people, that God would take on human flesh and bone and would dwell with his people on this very soil. The land that Abraham was standing on was the land through which the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would come. That indeed God was setting the stage by promising this land to Abraham's descendants, for this would be the land through which Jesus would come into the world. And this Jesus would march up and down this land, preaching and teaching and healing and casting out demons and ministering and loving this Jesus would be in this land where he would be born, he would grow, he would live, he would die, and he would rise again. And Jesus promised that one day he would return to this land. And one day this will be a permanent place where his presence would rest and he would be with his people forever. You see, Jesus promised that one day he's going to bring a new land and a new city that has foundations whose architect and builder is God. I love how John describes this in Revelation 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. You see, God promises his children a future promised land where he will dwell with him forever. 
We're going to be with him forever. And if you're wondering, is there any hope in this life? The answer is yes. There is a future land, a future home that belongs to you. And right now, as we go through a life of hardship and suffering and difficulty, as you and I hear you have cancer, you've lost your job, your child's walking away from the faith, you've lost all of your money, When we face hardship, we are being reminded over and over and over again, we are not in Eden. We are not home yet. We are sojourners who are passing through. We have a future home that is coming, that is permanent, and the very presence of God is going to be there. Your faith will be sight. Your hope will be realized, and that is your true home. This land that God is promising to Abraham is pointing forward to an even greater land that is coming through the Lord Jesus Christ. When he said in John 14, I go and prepare a place for you so that when I go, I will call you to myself and so that where I am, you will be also. Jesus has gone to prepare a place that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. This is your future home, and so you can have hope. So tomorrow morning when you wake up at 8 o'clock to go to work, go to class, go to the ball field, is there any reason to get up and have purpose? Yes, because the Lord Jesus Christ is alive, and he has promised a future for you. He's promised you a home, a land in which you will be with him forever, a new earth a new heavens, a new Jerusalem, in which all of the redeemed throughout the ages who have believed the gospel, we will be there together. We're going to celebrate, and we're going to revel, and we're going to worship and wonder of who God is and what he has done for us in the gospel. And he has provided us a new land. You see, this territory that Abraham stands upon, it's temporary acreage that's pointing forward to a future perfect, imperishable land where true Israel will be seated on his throne and his people will dwell with him forever. So in Stephen's sermon, he points to God's promise of land. But I want you to see, secondly, we see God's promise of descendants through Abraham. God's promise of descendants. God promised Abraham property and progeny, soil and sons, real estate, and real offspring. Here is Stephen reminding the Sanhedrin that, the Sanhedrin that verse 6, Abraham's descendants would be strangers in a foreign country, and they would enslave and oppress them for 400 years. Stephen is quoting Genesis 15, where God was telling Abraham hundreds of years before Moses was born, that Israel would be enslaved for 400 years. Now, we know on this side of redemptive history that God was foretelling the suffering of his people in Egypt under Pharaoh. Y'all, God knows everything before it happens. Now, there are deeper truths to mine here from the text, but let's not skip over that one. God is already telling Abraham, here's what's going to happen hundreds of years from now. My people, your descendants, through which you don't have a child yet, they're going to go into a nation where they're going to be suffering and oppressed, and they're going to be there for 400 years. God is calling his shot, saying, here's what's about to happen. 
all that we might bask in God's sovereignty. And you would be amazed at who He is. Don't just speed by the Grand Canyon of God's character and shrug. Let's not just miss who God is. We can't speed past God's omniscience and not be amazed. Y'all, let's marvel at His majesty. Behold His beauty. Stand amazed at His foreknowledge. May His character compel you towards worship and wonder of who He is. This is the God we love and worship and obey. Let's never stop being amazed at who He is, what He knows, what He's able to do, what God has done, how He reveals Himself. Well, God promised that He would judge that nation. Verse 7, And those judgments come to fruition as the ten plagues in Exodus 7-12. through And not only did God judge the nation, but He also provided a rescuer who would lead God's people out of captivity so that they would worship Him. God wanted the hearts of His people. God was after their hearts. He wanted them to be brought out so that they might worship Him. May I say to you, God wants your heart. He wants your worship. He wants you to say, God, I'm not just giving you Sunday mornings. I'm giving you all of my life. I'm yours. And I'm giving you my best in my giving, in my serving, in my living, in the way that I speak, in the way that I treat my spouse, in the way that I raise my kids, all of my life is worship. I want to glorify Christ in all that I do and say. I want people to see Christ in me as I live a life of worship at the ball field, in the boardroom, in the classroom. Honoring Christ in all areas of life. Here we see that God would raise up a rescuer, Moses. Moses will be this man who will come and bring God's people out of slavery. And yet we know that Moses is a foreshadowing of an even greater rescuer. We're going to unpack this more in the coming weeks. But Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses who leads God's people out of slavery to sin and death. Jesus is the true and greater Moses. And we're going to unpack that in the the weeks ahead. But Jesus is the ultimate rescuer of God's people. But then Stephen then reminds the Sanhedrin of the sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham. As we see throughout the scriptures, whenever God makes a covenant, he pairs it with a sign. He's going to give a covenant, he's going to make a covenant with us, and then he brings a sign to show that covenant. So when God made a covenant with Noah that he would never flood the earth again, The sign of the covenant was the rainbow. When God made a covenant with Adam, the sign of the covenant was the seed of the woman, whom we know is Jesus, who crushes the head of the serpent. At the sign of the covenant with David was his throne. But now we see with Abraham that God makes a covenant with him, that God would bless him and his descendants. And what is the sign? Circumcision. Now the cutting of the body in circumcision It did not save, but rather it was an outward sign of faith. The Lord knows full well that, y'all, our hearts are broken. We live broken lives. Our hearts are sinful. And that an outpatient surgical procedure cannot save. Okay, That surgery cannot change the heart. Circumcision was designed to point to an even greater cutting that had to take place, not on your body, but in your hearts. Moses pointed to this in Deuteronomy 30. The Lord your God will circumcise 
your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul so that you will live. You see, for the Jews under the old covenant, salvation was found not by keeping the law, but by faith in the Yahweh who would come, a future rescuer, a redeemer, one who would come and save God's people. On, as New Testament believers, we are saved by looking backwards at the Messiah, Yahweh, who came for us through the cross. You see, the law of God does not make us right with God. The law reveals that we are not right with Him. It shows how we can't keep his law perfectly. We are broken people. And there's no way we could keep all of his laws. And so God, who is the law giver, also became the law keeper. That Jesus came and lived that perfect life of obedience that we couldn't live. He keeps God's law and then he dies on our behalf for all of the ways that we have fallen short. That Jesus goes to the cross and he makes a way through his blood that God would then give or impute his righteousness to us through faith in Christ. You see, when we hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit changes our hearts. When you hear the good news of Jesus and what he has done for you through his death and through his resurrection, what happens is the Holy Spirit circumcises your heart. He cuts your heart. It brings you to the point in which you believe the gospel. So change takes place not from the outside in, but from the inside out. It's not about acting religious on the outside, hoping that that's what makes us right with God. No, 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 no. We put our faith in Christ on the inside, and then he, out of the overflow of your heart, the Holy Spirit begins changing your character, your nature. You become more and more like Jesus. It's almost like this. You, you come to Jesus, and he'll clean you up. You don't have to get cleaned up on your own and then come to Jesus. You just come to him. You think about the prodigal son, how stinky and smelly he was. He carried the odor of those pigs and that swine, that mud. He was dirty and smelly, and his father runs to him, wraps his robe around him, puts a ring on his finger, and celebrates, my son is home. You come to Jesus, and he will wash you and clean you, and he will make you new. Well, under the new covenant, a mark that you've been made new is there's an outward sign of this new covenant. But this outward sign is not circumcision like the old covenant. The new sign is baptism. Baptism is the New Testament sign that your heart has been changed, that you've put your faith in Christ. In fact, next Sunday and afternoon, we're going to head down to Orr Park in Montevallo, and we're going to baptize a whole bunch of folks. We've got 33 people signed up to get baptized uh, next Sunday. And maybe for you, and that's your next step of faith. That if you've put your faith in Christ, your next step is baptism, and we'd love for you to be a part of that. And if you're not scared of snakes, we would invite you to come. <laughs> well, okay, Kenneth, I'm not so sure about this covenant thing, man. <laughs> but it's a celebration. It's an outward sign of an inward change where Jesus has changed your hearts. Well, after this sign of circumcision, verse 8, Abraham finally becomes a father at the ripe old age of 100. Circumcision took place, which now is baptism, as a sign. It's interesting. So <laughs> several years ago, Christy, when I was a student pastor, we would take students to Gatlinburg on a winter retreat. 
And I remember in between one of the sessions, Christy and I, we were there with a whole bunch of students and the weather was cold and I, my, my hands were all dry and I, I, was, my, I took my wedding ring off and this teenage girl goes, <gasps> she goes, you took your ring off. And I said, yes. And she says, are you still married? <laughs> right? And I said, yes, I'm still married. This is just a sign the fact that I'm married. I'm married whether I wear the ring or not. This is a symbol of an even greater reality. Baptism is a symbol of an even greater reality. You've believed the gospel and you're showing the world, you're testifying that Jesus has changed your heart. And so we see where here Stephen is referencing circumcision. We know what it is under the new covenant. But then he points to Abraham becoming a father, which is miraculous when you go back and read the book of Genesis. That Sarah at the age of 90 and Abraham at the age of 100 finally have a son named Isaac. And then would come Jacob. And then would come the 12 sons of Israel. God was faithful to keep his promise. Abraham would have descendants. But you see, the multiplication of the Israelites is not the end of the story. God was up to something bigger than the people of Israel being fruitful and multiplying. I want you to remember, the Lord promised him that he would be the father of many nations, plural. There was a blessing that God had for the entire world through the lineage of Abraham. Well, who is that blessing? When you come to the very first verse of the New Testament, you find out who it is. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham through which all the nations of the earth are blessed. Jesus is of the lineage of David, the lineage of Abraham. God had Jesus in mind from the very beginning. Jesus is the one through which all peoples of the earth can be saved from sin and death. Jesus is the one who provides salvation and eternal life through his shed blood. And when you turn from your sin and you trust in Christ by faith, God will receive you and you become a son of Abraham. Paul says it like this in Galatians 3, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Which means if you are a believer in Jesus, you are a true child of Abraham. Which means in Christ, you are one of the stars that Abraham saw. You are the sand on the seashore. In Christ, you are the great nation of Abraham. In Christ, you are children of the promise. In Christ, you are among the nations that is blessed. That God has a blessing for the nations. And it's his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Sanhedrin, they missed it. As, a, as Stephen is unpacking all of who Jesus is, and he's the fulfillment, Jesus is the blessing, but the Sanhedrin missed it. The Messiah was the one whom they crucified. The Messiah is the one that they completely missed. They hated Jesus. 
In fact, when Jesus said in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. They picked up stones to try to kill Jesus. They despised him. And ultimately, it was the Sanhedrin that tried him, beat him, and crucified him. Little did they know that they were rejecting the one that God had promised to Abraham. And little did they know that they were fulfilling what God said would happen to the Messiah. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to all this? All this information, what are you calling us to do? It's your impact point. It's this, trust in Christ and you will become a son of Abraham. Christy and I were in Kenya several years ago and we were going from school to school ministering and sharing the gospel and it was an incredible trip while we were there I stood before a sea of kids and we sang a song together Father Abraham had many sons many sons had Father Abraham I am one of them and so are you so let's all praise the Lord right arm left arm right foot left foot, sit down. We laughed and we giggled. And it's funny when you think about it. The nations gathering together to sing that we're sons of Abraham. And there's not even a strand of Jewish DNA in any of our veins. And the reality is, we're sons of Abraham because of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you put your faith in Jesus, you become a son. You become a child of the Most High. I'm one of them. And so are you. So let's all praise the Lord.